A few years ago, Harris Reed faced a very typical human dilemma. I was going to like a mate's birthday at a pub or something and I could not find anything to wear. And it was like the early days. This was a problem he could solve. I was like, oh, I need to make something for a party. And I made these flares and this, you know, pink top, which is actually now... The fabric was almost metallic pink. The shirt had puffy sleeves that narrowed at the wrist. Its most prominent feature was a lace collar that both floated down his chest and fanned out below Harris's chin. I really started creating my clothing because I literally didn't see anything out there that represented who the fuck I was. Today, you can see the piece yourself. The outfit is now part of the collection at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Which is actually now what the V&A have for the permanent loan until I die, and long after I die, which is quite amazing, actually, that that is the piece they had, the first thing I made when it was part of my exploration to my gender. So at the time, I was they, them, and then... I- Harris Reed is 26 now. He's tall, like model tall, with long red hair. He's a graduate of Central St. Martin's College, where Alexander McQueen and John Galliano also attended. But Harris has let his taste guide him. He likes poet blouses and flares and oversized statement hats. He made a whole line of clothes from used wedding dresses. His gender-fluid clothing is an extravagant invitation, first to those who felt, like Harris, that they didn't fit in, and second to the rest of us. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Harris Reed is a Mexican-American fashion designer, currently living in London. He dressed Iman for the Met Gala in 2021, and Harry Styles for Vogue. Lil Nas X, Rihanna, Emma Watson, and Lizzo have appeared on magazine covers and events, all in his clothing. But Harris is his own best model. As he shares his clothing on social media, he's building a community, a movement that brings people in. With each attention-grabbing piece, Harris broadens what society understands clothing can do. Harris Reed, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm extremely excited to dive in today. So can you describe to me what gender-fluid clothing means and how you interpret it. I've heard lots of interpretations, but I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, so gender-fluid clothing, it's actually so interesting because I feel like, you know, I've been doing this now for three proper years in my business. And I feel like throughout the interviews in the past three years, my definition is always quite fluid because it's always kind of changing. But I guess for me, gender-fluid clothing is clothing that isn't for a specific gender. Gender-fluid clothing is from my personal interpretation, is about sparking a conversation and a greater discussion around how we play with the masculine and the feminine. I also think the same way that I use fluid in my own way. I think for me, fluid is really your most authentic way of existing and being and not fitting into boxes. But I also know that at the same time, like my version of fluidity might not be what somebody else's is or another designer's because mine happens to kind of manifest itself in Studio 54-esque flares and like poet shirts that kind of look back at the Rococo era and this romanticism. And so for me, it's very much of this mix of rock and roll, very androgynous, very ambiguous, very not at all about what your sexual orientation is, what your gender identity is, but just being a being on this earth and kind of pushing your own limits and pushing your own conversations, whether it's about gender or not. Um, I hope that maybe answers. (laughs) Would you like to have been around in the Studio 54 era? Yes and no. My mom actually was model in the 80s and she would go to Studio 54 and like has met kind of like that whole crew. And I mean, I don't know what I can say on here, but it sounds like she has some pretty wild nights. 
It's a very safe space. You can say anything. <laughs> well, I remember my mom when I was very young being like, Harris, you're going to like drugs. Trust me, they're amazing, but don't do them because they're addictive. And I was like, mom, what do you know? She's like, darling, I was back in the studio 54 days where you literally couldn't get through the clouds of white powder. And when I was 14, I didn't fully know what she talked about. Now I know what she means. Um, <laughs> so I think I definitely have a deep romanticism of like the life that I have in my head of what she kind of lived and bouncing around Meatpacking District and all of that, I think is that wonder and kind of lustful romanticization of what life would have been back then, I think is like a huge driving kind of force of, I hate to say force of inspiration in my work, but it tends to be this nuance that I think is kind of all around what I do. And you touched on it a bit earlier on, but um, how do you describe your own gender fluidity? You refer to yourself as he, but does that change? It all kind of came about where I started creating and designing because at that time I was going by they, them. I was gender fluid and I also, I guess, also falling into the box of non-binary. And I really started creating my clothing because I literally didn't see anything out there that represented who the fuck I was. I was going to like a mate's birthday at a pub or something and I could not find anything to wear. And it was like the early days where maybe just like Gucci and Alessandra was just touching on the idea of being... I don't want to say different, but it wasn't even like fluid yet, but it was just kind of in that nuance of there's a big change coming. I was like, oh, I need to make something for a party. And I made these flares and this pink top, which is actually now what's the V&A have for the permanent loan until I die and long after I die, which is quite amazing, actually, that that is the piece they had, the first thing I made when it was part of my expiration to my gender. So at the time I was they, them. And then as I got older and as I started doing campaigns and jobs and, you know, starting to run a business and the fluid aspect felt a bit tokenistic, it felt very much like I was going to meetings and they're like, oh, you're the fluid designer. And yeah. it kind of immediately was just about the fact that I was they, them. And I remember sitting in like an editing meeting for a massive collaboration I was doing and like watching me getting photoshopped on this screen and I had 10,000 pounds worth of extensions in. And I was looking and I remember getting so emotional because I was like, oh my God, am I showing young kids that they, them looks the same way that when I was a young kid in the bathroom at the house looking at a Victoria's Secret catalog being like, this is what a woman should look like. And then seeing the Abercrombie and Fitch catalog with a ripped... 5'11 guy and this is what a man should look like am I now showing that this is what they them looks like you know I'm almost seven feet tall in those shoes the hair the body the look it's like very unattainable and I think I went into my own thing of okay what is actually who is who am literally kind of in a bit of a spiral of who am I like if I'm gonna say that I'm fluid, what does that really mean? And I I hated that quickly, as society does, they want a box for something because we want a label. We're fucking obsessed with labels yeah. so we can understand something, so we can dissect something, so we can move forward. So for me, I quickly was like, actually, the reason that I found salvation and found myself identifying as gender fluid is because I think sexuality is fluid. And so I kind of did the thing I was a bit nervous about and was actually like, I still identify as fluid. I'm he, him right now. That actually feels like it fits me. But then at the same time, I know that maybe in you know a couple months time, actually they, them might suit better. And also who knows in maybe 10, 15 years, I want to explore looking at, you know, she, her. So for me, it was just the idea that it is a fluid thing and it's a way within my own gender to take a bit of control back instead of being like, I'm fluid and everyone's like, great, well, you're they, them and you're this box. And we understand it and we want it to look like this. It doesn't obviously have to be like that all the time, but it really sparked a bigger conversation within myself of how I identified. So as you said, I do identify as fluid, but my pronouns at the moment are he, him. And I think that's even, I want to say progressive in the fluid community, but it's definitely unlocking so much. But it's been, again, also doing this all very much in the public eye. I say that as if I'm like Lindsay Bloody Lohan. I'm not, but like, you know, doing this very much, it's a part of my work. It's part of every discussion. It's part of, you know, if I do, you know, the New Yorker, or if I do some like talk show, whatever it is, it's a conversation. So it's been a lot of good therapy. Does it get boring? Actually, this morning, Phoebe, who works with me, she's my brand director, asked me politely, like, 
I've now worked for you for almost two years and every conversation you have starts along the lines of talking about fluidity with respect to you um, in this interview. But like, are you getting tired of it? It's so funny because I think before the V&A exhibition I was a part of and also the kind of retrospective of my work that I did like a couple of weeks ago, I was really getting exhausted and a little bit burnt out because I think we did over 300, 400 interviews around the shows and some collaborations. And I was like, okay, I'm getting tired. I'm talking about the same thing over and over again, back to your point about fluidity. And I was like, haven't we covered this? Like, let's move forward. Like, why aren't we just saying that I'm just the cool designer or the young designer? Why is it always just this, this, this? And I remember when we did the exhibition at the V&A, I like to be a bit of a fly in the wall, kind of listening and observing. And I remember seeing all these people, because I went back after the private view and just the way people's eyes were like opening and the conversations that were happening between families and fathers and sons and children. It was still this huge topic. And I was like, fuck, we actually do need to keep talking about this because you fall into such a privilege by being in this bubble that for me, it's just the norm. Like for me, I'm like, you know, I don't see my friends. And the first thing we talk about is how they sexually identify or like how, how that is like the core root of what they're doing or their art or their medium. We talk about their medium, the art, what's happening in the world. But it was actually, and I get chills, it was quite eye opening to be like, holy shit, we have so much work to keep doing because, you know, me just making some pink, you know, flouncy outfit that I'm so tired of, in a polite way, seeing and almost frankly tired of talking about, you're like, there's still such a bigger discussion that needs to happen on the masses. And I think, you know, just seeing what's been happening in America and this don't say gay and it's kind of my fucking responsibility. Like, I can't drop that sword now. I might be heavy and it might be kind of hurting my arm, but it's time to switch to the other hand and then kind of put it up and fight for something. And I think also to that point, I want to be at the space where I think in hopefully, you know, knock on wood, 20 years time speaking within fashion or even greater than that, I don't think we're going to be saying like, this is men's, this is women's, this is non-binary. It's just make these are clothes, you know, look at TikTok, look at the younger generations. Even my sister's friends are talking about their sexuality, their identity. But I also do think that you don't go into a battle with a blank flag. You go into a battle with a flag that says something and stands for something. And for me, I think there's that importance of having that fluid flag flying. Is it not possible for a brand, I don't want to mention anyone, but let's say there's a brand that's run by um, a heterosexual designer is it not possible for them to be able to produce gender fluid clothing with authenticity? I don't think it is if it's not consulted with someone who is gender fluid. And let's say they did do that. There was a consultation. Yeah. They had somebody who was working with them, but it was still under the umbrella mm. of a heterosexual designer. Mm. Would it be accepted? I think if it was done in the right way. Okay. You know, when I talked to Alok, who's an incredible writer and non-binary, you know, their biggest thing was always about like to these companies, if you want to do something, stop being so fucking scared to do it. Just ask us for help. I'm not going to charge someone a massive fee because hopefully queer people have built these platforms. If we're a part of something that we would immediately hope that then there wouldn't be this big call out of like, oh, you're just doing this because of this, because actually you can see how we're helping. And I think that's the only way to have a 360 on something because I feel like a lot of the time with my work, I constantly see it being ripped off, but it's hysterical because they can never actually rip off who I am. They can rip off the design, but it's just shown on some white heterosexual in a pussy bow blouse. And I'm like, okay, well, you're not really getting the fluid thing. Are they like fluid, fluid clothing? And then you're watching the casting, you're watching the marketing, you're watching whatever is kind of out there. And you're like, wow, this would have been done so much better. If you didn't even ask me, ask the fellow graduates coming out of LCF or Westminster or Kingston. There's so many, even as I'm bringing on interns right now and hiring a new employee, like tackling, you know, fluid fashion. I think you can't just make a product. It's about giving a voice to a product. And I think it has to be a genuine voice. I just want to jump back because you you quite subtly dropped in uh, the V&A and you have this amazing ex- exhibit at the moment around fashioning masculinities. 
And in the exhibit, your clothes are juxtaposed with a picture of an 18th century French aristocrat in like a rose silk suit and lace collar. And there have been many moments throughout history where menswear was not nearly as gendered. David Bowie's style is another notable example, but there seems to be a broader acceptance for gender fluid clothing and gender fluid expression right now. What is it about this moment that makes it the right time? I think just the accessibility that the world now has to information. I look at my own career and it's all been through, I mean, for those obviously who won't be watching, they'll be listening, I'm holding my iPhone. And like the fact that everything came through this little thing in my hand right here, all my communication, all my learning, all my sharing, all my following has come through itself. And I feel like right now is it's a time I think where Everyone has so much information, so we're all questioning everything. I think right before COVID, fast fashion was just going and going and going and going. And we were so kind of in this rhythm. And then COVID strikes, and it makes us question everything. And then I think everyone starts looking at you know the sustainability side, but then also looking at, you know we have stuff like the metaverse coming because we're so overly informed that everyone's like, in the metaverse, why do we have to then pick two genders or like three genders? Why isn't it just fully open? So there's all these discussions because of, I think, the accessibility of just information. And I think at the same time, as someone who's a queer person, there's a safety that we now have because of, again, holding my phone in my hand, looking down at it with love, (laughs) because this device in my hand is such an easy thing for me to be able to get dressed up at home, be in a safe space where I'm not going to be bullied, ridiculed, catcalled, whatever, on the streets or at an event, but I can dress exactly how I want. I can test things out, but they can still share it. You can share it with a whole community on the internet that you have this huge, broad reach. And even if you only have a thousand followers, it's very easy to kind of quickly start connecting with fellow queer people. It's interesting that you say that the space that you occupy online is safe because that's not how many people see it. Of course. Right. I mean, there's an awful lot of conversation around how unsafe Facebook and TikTok and and other Mm. places are, but you see it as a space of safety. And I think that's a really, really important point because I think also I look at it as a place of safety, I think from a place of privilege because I've been able to build a community of people that will always fight. But you'll have someone who will just say like, God's praying for your sins. But I know that I've built enough of a community of people who are like, well, you're fucking just being who you are and that's awesome. Or you've inspired me to do this and that's awesome. It is a good point because also, you know, there is insane amounts of bullying and I've gone through that when I was younger and now building a bit of a platform and like a name. I, you know, knock on wood, don't get that as much, but... I think it's when it's just about trying to do it in the right way. I think like I know a lot of my friends until they were ready were keeping accounts private. I'm speaking more to Instagram here of just kind of keeping all their information in a space that did feel safe. But then again, the second you make something a public thing, you are there to be judged by anyone and everyone. Yeah. There was a space that I was where I remember the harassment was constant and it was coming off the back of me doing some work, I think, with GQ and I'll be so excited. And then I kind of forget who the demographic actually is usually of those magazines. And it's usually a quite straight male crowd. So if it's not, you know, I love you, GQ. But if it's, you know, maybe not Megan Fox with her boobs pouring out in a gorgeous dress on the cover and it's more me looking like a quote-unquote woman, I've seen the comments and they were horrific. And I've seen the, I don't want to say backlash, but just the ignorance and how much that affected me. And I'm very privileged to be able to have incredible friends, a therapist that I see from time to time, like people that I can rely on for resources to, you know, know that I'll be okay. And I know everyone doesn't have that. And so is that how you deal with the commentary? For me, it sounds just so like, ugh, I must roll my eyes at myself, but it is kind of true. Like a lot of the negativity and stuff, I usually try to fuel it into work that I'm doing because I really believe in it. Obviously, that would be full bullshit if I'm saying I do that all the time. Like I definitely have a good cry. You also never know what's going to rub you the wrong way. Like it literally can be, you know, a man giving you a look on the bus or it can be someone out loud screaming awful things at you. But Have you had that? Yeah, I get that a lot. It's so funny because people think, 
oh, you never get that. Yeah. I take a cab as much as I can in like a car, especially if I'm going to a dinner. Because I mean, you've seen me sometimes. I'm always I'm going out in huge platforms. Love a sheer moment. Love a good thong. I like to peacock and be fabulous. And I think people think you kind of hit a point. Like I remember literally someone calling me a faggot while I was riding a bus with my face on it. It was such a funny point in my life because I was running late for a meeting, gridlock traffic. I was like, I'll take the bus. I love the bus. And I literally get on it. And someone was literally having a go at me for like me wearing a faux python platform and like some silver sequin flares. I didn't even think I looked anything more than myself. But I remember I was taken so aback because I'm like, my face is on this fucking bus. Like, I don't like, I'm like, it's, but again, it's like why this conversation is important and why we need to keep having it, you know? And why I want to keep fighting. And like, I hate, I just don't want to say the word fighting. But just being who I am and hopefully allowing other people to kind of, you know, be able to live their truth in whatever way that manifests itself on the outside and inside. So the combination of Instagram and TikTok managed to fast track some of this potentially that was already happening, but it gave it sort of nitro. And and then do you think that that in, the com- in combination with the clothing and your gender fluidity, we're in a position where we can actually change culture? Would it have been possible without those social media networks? I feel like my relevance and what I'm standing for and who I am and what I'm creating came really because we had things like an Instagram. Because I think people were seeing so much. And I think there's a negative and a positive to everything. And I want everyone to know that I'm not saying that Instagram is the most amazing thing because I also delete it for weeks and I also get very emotional and I have, you know, so many issues with it myself and, you know, comparing yourself worth to a like. And it's so instant. All that quickness has allowed then this conversation of what I was doing to then be seen so much greater because in the olden days, you would only see your favorite artists when they were ready to release their album and they had their campaign going and they had it on like buses and posters and things. And now you see the full process through Instagram and their stylists and their makeup artists and their hair artists. And everyone has a profile now and everyone has a point of view now. Everyone actually who are making these pop icons like Ariana Grande is gay. Everyone who's like doing anything is basically queer. Not all the time, but I'm feeling a lot, especially within the music space. And you're now following all these different stories and seeing all these different things. And let's take like a Harry Styles, for instance, and you're seeing someone like amazing like Harry Lambert who's styling him. And now you're kind of following Harry Lambert's stories and you're watching what he's doing and the cool queer people he's hanging out with. And I think I, and obviously a lot of people know that kind of things took off when it was Harry Styles and I was doing his world tour. But I think more to that, people were able to see the inside look into who I was and what I was creating. And that was like, oh, this actually has a relevance right now because we've been seeing so much and we're so invested in Star's life to an extent. Tell us a moment where you realized that your clothes had power. Mm -hmm. There was some magic in it or that, you know, you could change how people could see themselves or how people could see them. There's definitely been a couple of those moments because I think those are obviously the moments that keep me doing what I do and make those sometimes 16 hours a day of working like worth it. I did like one of Adele's looks for her new music video that recently came out and it was just nothing more than a pussy bow blouse with massive oversized sleeves, my classic silhouette. And the response was amazing in terms of people thinking it was beautiful and elegant and amazing, but people would probably not put that as, wow, that was a pinnacle moment within your career or made you kind of realize that your clothing are making a difference. But what happened from that was this massive influx of people and then going to my profile and then reading, clicking on my, you know, my Instagram captions and reading different things and then going to the internet and Googling things about myself. And I remember literally having like, I don't know, over 10,000 DMs from people from all over the world being like, I found out who you were and it made me realize, I didn't know you could have a career in the arts. Oh, I just took this amazing painting class. Oh, I didn't know that you 
could be this. Oh, I came out to my parents. But it was like these crazy long paragraph messages. I do get all this insane interaction of people who are responding to more than just the clothing, but what the clothing stands for, because it's helping them, or I've been told, which is incredible, that it's helping them on their exploration of their sexuality. It's helping them understand that, you know, you can do something super unconventionally. Look at me at CSM and my teachers never understanding what I was doing and trying to almost fail me, but that I'm doing knock on wood quite well now. And the classic one that I was going to say was, you know, Harry Styles when I did the American Vogue cover story with Anna Wintour and he wore that dress and I was like, oh, great, we're going to do this. I was so excited. I was so honored. But I didn't really think about what it would then maybe equal in terms of then the world seeing it. So then obviously the world sees it and then there was its own backlash bring back manly men or whatever, you know, people are going on about, but you were like, oh, whoa, like this started another conversation around how men should be dressing and should be in that. I felt very honored to be able to be a part of that conversation because I think that sparked so many people having those conversations and defending also the fact that we're now in a space where anyone should be able to wear what they want to do. But that was a big moment, I think, in my career where I was like, what I'm doing still has purpose. Always reminding people as well with my work, like I didn't expect someone walk down the street in a giant ball gown with a massive hat and a huge jacket but I'm always about the pendulum effect and I feel like we need to push it so far left to the fact that we're seeing representation of gen I hate the word gender bending fashion but gender bending fashion to such an extreme that then it inspires let's say like a banker oh maybe actually I'll wear a colorful ascot today and I'll maybe wear my wife's top with my suit and he goes out and wears that and then people start wearing it and it becomes more normalized that we're wearing these things that are so non-constricting and so individual that then a young trans individual she feels safe to then start experimenting with her clothing on the streets because it creates that community maybe that's a a childish thought or it's it's a bit naive but i do think it has a trickle down effect did you select harry i mean he's someone who's quite good at transformation himself mm. he's managed his image pretty well in transforming it throughout his career was that just coincidence or were you proactively out looking for somebody like harry I mean, it's always funny because anything I've ever done has fallen together very fluidly. I'm sure the audience wants to now smack me in the face, but it's I've never to this day actively really gone to try to land someone or land something. I've now kind of started saying in interviews, oh, I would dream to work with this person. But the Harry thing happened very much where Harry Lambert, who's a stylist, like who is a genius, came to me, saw what I was doing, saw what I was standing for and paired me and Harry for that first tour together and then the future editorial projects, music videos and all of this other stuff. And it was just a very harmonious pairing of him going through his own transition with his style, me being very me, as you can probably tell from me, <laughs> jumping around. And I mean, you know, people can't see me, but I'm very bubbly and crazy and fluid and fun. And I think it was just a beautiful kinship there. And I think it worked super well, but it did happen to be... And modest, I, I want to say too. What? <laughs> Oh, Damon, you wouldn't be 25 <laughs> running a business in a global pandemic if we were modest. You still, you know, we gotta, gotta know our worth. This is a perfect segue. Can you talk a little bit about your business model? Because it's not particularly traditional either. Mm. And when I've spoken to you, you've rejected the idea of getting funding. You've rejected the idea of taking on investors. Mm -hmm. You're doing it on your own. And you've done pretty successfully, managed to do work on the side to pay for, you know, your own work. So how's it working? How's your business model working in Whenever anyone kind of goes into an interview with me or meets me, people say it. I don't know how to say it, not, but it does kind of sound rude. They're like, oh, I didn't realize you were kind of a good business person. Like everyone's kind of surprised. I think, Did I say that to you? No, you didn't say this to me, but you know, people are always like, oh, you actually have a good head on your shoulders. And I was like, yeah, I wouldn't be 25 and you know, hiring a new employee and having a full-time PR company and having lawyers creating you know, two shows a year. with That doesn't just happen. It's from me making my own conscious decisions. It's not saying they're the right ones for everyone, but I've interned since I was... 
I mean, shouldn't be probably admitting this, but like, I think I met Kelly Catrone at a book signing when I was 14. And I literally begged her, can I go to New York with you and work with you? And she was like, yeah, get on a flight tomorrow. And I remember my dad was there. I was like, dad, can you go meet this woman? Like, just make sure she's not going to like, I don't know, kidnap me. And he was like, you know, thank God I had a great dad, which I think is a good thing. He was like, yeah, go to New York, have fun. At 14? Yeah, at 14. God, Kelly, I hope nobody comes for you. On your own? On my own. But the good news with Kelly is at the time, her offices, which are still in Soho, but she owned the kind of the whole building or she had the whole building. So her apartment was on the top floor and then it was showroom, showroom, and then the offices. So I wasn't like wandering New York by myself. So I got to stay on her sofa. I slept on the sofa at her house. And then I would just walk down the stairs in the morning down to the offices and work literally, you know, from 10 a.m. to 4 a.m. But fully volunteering, fully amazing. You know, I just could leave whenever I wanted to. I don't want people to think I was like doing child labor. Like I literally live for every second of it. I remember I saved up to buy this like Givenchy Ricardo t-shirt like hoodie on eBay to wear and I wore it every single day because I had nothing kind of quote-unquote designer or fashionable to wear and I literally remember doing like front of house like Nicholas K and Mara Hoffman and like literally asking editors they couldn't sit in the front row and tell them to move back and they're like how the fuck old are you and I was like 14 like like literally no joke and thank god <laughs> I look very different now because I work with those editors all the time and I don't think they ever would have remembered me with my bleach blonde hair and skinny jeans and combat boots back in those days but I learned so much interning with her and I learned so much and, you know, seeing the way Jeremy Scott worked and then, you know, leading to like later life where I was, you know, apprenticing at Gucci with Alessandra Michele in Rome. And then when I was working, you know, for smaller brands like Phoebe English and I was all about interning as much as possible, getting as much experience. So now going into my business, you go into CSM which is an extraordinary school. And I don't want people to think I'm saying anything bad about it, but I'm a very unapologetically who I am person. And I only want to make a mistake if I believe that it's the right thing to do. And I think when I came into making my own company, if you're so quote unquote, let's say lucky to then get exposure to be in a press show or to be seen by people, there's this automatic expectation and almost pressure by the industry to produce that full collection. You need to go immediately into showroom. You need to go immediately into producing it to go into stores. It's this kind of huge wave that most people, unless you're super, super rich, I don't know how the hell you fund it. And my friends that do do it are literally breaking teeth and nails to make it happen. And it's insane how difficult it is. And I remember being like, no, I'm not doing that. I know I have something that people want in a respectful way. I know I have a bigger vision here and I know I need to take this on my own stride. Keep in mind, we have Brexit going on. We have a global pandemic going on. Like there's so many supply chain issues. There's all these things that I was like, it does not make sense for me, Harris Reed, to have my blouse on a rack. <laughs> this is now three years ago. And to sit in the same price point as Gucci, to literally borrow my from anyone to then put something on the rack. And then I'm not going to buy a hair suit blouse when I could buy a Gucci blouse three years ago because I knew how badly my blouse would have been made at that time. And maybe the design was not nearly what it needed to be. And I wasn't ready. So, so how do you do it differently then? Okay, I would literally just put the numbers down and ask, you know, my fellow designers, maybe a couple of years older, how much do you need to make a season? And let's say we'll use an example of 10,000. That's how you can kind of keep the lights on, the machines on. You know, obviously we can get into the fact that I've worked clever collaborations to have studios and stuff, but this is what you need. I'd be like, great, I'm going to go find two clients. So I would just sneak into a bunch of parties and find really fabulous women and be like, I'll design you a dress. It's five grand and find two of those women every month or every season and kind of do it that way. And then I was like, well, also what I'm standing for is so much more than clothes. It's a way of being and existing. And I want to be able to, as I was building kind of a quick following through all these VIP jobs and through all these kind of celebrity projects, let's actually get product to people through collaborations and use those collaborations to fund the company, but let's not do something that doesn't feel genuine. So it was this kind of mix of finding private clients, but also as well doing clever collaborations to fund then some people hopefully have seen my shows, maybe you haven't, but they're extremely large productions. They're not cheap whatsoever. Sam Smith performed at the last one. 
Lucas Palumbo did the entire set. Um, so, you know, having to find ways to, to fund those experiences that then can fund the greater whole. What should the big fashion houses change? Mm. What can you teach them about what you've learned and what you think people are looking for today? It's the authenticity and it's that the messaging is more important than the product. And I mean that more in terms of obviously, yes, we go to Gucci because we want a Gucci bag. We go to Hermes. I mean, we all aspire to go to Hermes maybe and buy like, let's say, a Birkin or something. It's, But it's about the world that was created around something and what you're stepping into, I think, is now more than ever more important. And I think it's all about what stands around it. So I think my advice to bigger brands is... We don't need to be doing five to six collections a year. Like we can be doing one collection. I think when I also started, a big part of my sustainability angle was the fact that what happened to the old days if you had a jacket, you passed on your daughter to her daughter to her daughter. My thing is like, let's pass it down to your trans daughter, to the non-binary kid, to your son, to everyone and make these garments that last longer. So I think just evaluating, obvious, how much we're producing, we're much more aware that fast fashion is not amazing. So I think it's going back to actually kind of coming up with these staples that are going to be a brand staple forever and back to those early Tom Ford days when you'd go to Gucci to get that amazing Gucci suit or you'd go to Marnie for that amazing print. I think brands need to kind of go back to their core and go back to what their DNA is and what they stand for. Bring on younger people to tackle your issues if you want to like do something around pride or LGBTQIA community. Bring on people of color if you're going to speak on behalf of that community. If you stand for something, it's more powerful. Um, Harris, it's great. I mean, it could go on for two hours. Well, it's been a pleasure. Harris's best friend. I really appreciate it. <laughs> for everyone who knows, that is how Damien logged into this conversation. It says Harris's best friend. So I would be so honored and so privileged. It's a fact. It's a fact. And that's our episode for today. Thank you to Harris Reed for gracing us with his style and presence. And if you'd like to hear more about Harris, you can find a short documentary about Harris and his work on WePresent.com. If you don't already have a WeTransfer Pro account, we'd like to give you one, or at least a few of you. So check out we.tl slash Harris, that's we.tl slash Harris, for a WeTransfer Pro account. Our gift to you as listeners. And if we run out, don't worry, there'll be plenty more next week. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is the ever-amazing Rachel Swaby. Please don't poach her. With editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh. Sound engineering is by the amazing Mark Bush and our WeTransfer credit producer is Cara O'Shea. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please follow us, rate us and leave us a review. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>